This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Friday, April 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Street battles are being waged in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, once more. A hope for peace during the Muslim holiday of Eid appears to have been thwarted. Over 400 people have died. I wouldn't be surprised if the death toll topped 1,000 soon. To understand the why of all this, it's helpful to understand the two men who represent the warring sides. They are not properly considered warlords. Well, one of them may be, but their titles and their legitimacy stem from the fact that each had actual positions in the armed forces. The Sudanese armed forces, i.e. the army, is led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, He's in his 60s, and he is a military commander of long standing. His rival is General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who leads the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary group, but until recently was a part of the official armed forces of the country. Now, the New York Times had a fascinating rundown of the personalities and histories of these men. And while the specifics are Sudanese-centric, the archetypes are really common. Hamdan is 48 and was, for a time, the 63-year-old General Burhan's his top attack dog. When the Sudanese were committing atrocities in Darfur, it was Hamdan who was Burhan's sword. Sometimes, literally, Hamdan's Janjaweed militia used horseback and whips and swords at times. The brutal methods of Hamdan were useful to General Burhan until they weren't. This plays out time and time again in history, in fact, and in fiction. Think of Yevgeny Prigozhin, Putin's attack dog who runs the Wagner Group and routinely threatens the madliness and the lives of Russia's more genteel officer corps. Think Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Escobar tasked Don Berna, the nom de guerre of Diego Mario Bejarano, and he was from La Oficina de Envigado. So that group, which later broke up and then Don Berna joined some irregulars who purposefully opposed Escobar. But the point was that Escobar liked the cunning and brutality of Don Berna until Don Berna's forces orchestrated Escobar's downfall. Game of Thrones has several such relationships. And why? Because they're archetypes. George R.R. R. Martin knows this. The powerful like to use others who will get their hands dirty. But once those hands are covered in blood and grime, there's not much keeping them off the neck of their former patrons. One detail of the rise of General Hamda stood out. After 
ousting of the former Sudanese president, al-Bashir, who is before the world court facing war crimes charges. Hamdan took the populist public relations route. He, while still leading the rapid support forces, held himself out as a champion of democracy. Then in December, and I love this from the New York Times story, Sudan's National Human Rights Commission declared General Hamdan its person of the year. I wasn't sure if this was like a trial lawyers association giving the award to an asbestos manufacturer, or maybe just cutting out the middleman and giving their award to mesothelioma itself. But it just seems like the Sudan National Human Rights Commission, which is controlled by the government, was essentially trying to buy off a guy with power and a lot of armed thugs backing him up. And, you know, why not try a little flattery? Hey, you're a good guy. Want a hand in your guns? No, he didn't. Maybe they just thought they'd be manifesting an actual humanitarian. Instead, what Sudan has on its hands and fighting in the streets is conflict once more. Conflict that is tied to the history of the country of Sudan, but also that's a shared story in the history of man. On the show today in the spiel, a payday for shy Koreans, a bonanza for shameless U.S. politicians. But first, there are currently six generations of people in the United States, and each generation have lived different lives due to culture, technology, the economies they were born into, and they saw transform under them. Jean M. Twenge, professor of psychology at San Diego State University, talks about how each generation is different from one another and how they can communicate more efficiently with each other. The new book is Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Professor Twenge up next. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Gene Twangy is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. And if you know the name, you might know it from her writing. In fact, her authoritative writing and research on generations. She's written books called iGen and Generation Me. And now she's out with a book called Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Gene Twangy, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. So no one in the history of studying generations or being interested in generations got into it because they wanted to know what 50-year-olds thought of 75-year-olds. It's always, it seems to me, that the driving force is to figure out these young humans who are among us and somehow think differently. Is that, was that what was most compelling to you? It, it was. Um, you know, when I got into studying generations, I was pretty young myself. Um, I was 21 and 22. I'm a Gen Xer. Everybody had all these guesses about what Gen X was like, but there was very little data. So that was how I got into it was boomers trying to figure out my own generation. And I thought guessing wrong. So thought it'd be good to try to find what the truth was. 
basically we had to wait until reality bites got made and then they got to define the generation for us. Exactly. And it was all mopey and sad and and I'm I don't know if any generation is as associated with a single figure. I mean maybe you could come up with someone, but Kurt Cobain is so linked to Gen X more than even Oprah is to yeah, the boomers or more than you know, uh, FDR is to the silent generation. Would you agree? I just thought of that, but that seems true, doesn't it? Well, you know, I think it's partially because Gen X was the last whole generation to really have a unified pop culture, you know, not just for music, but also for TV and, and movies and it all kind of atomized after that. So, you know, we're, we are the, the, the uh, generation who loves loves our pop culture, and we're also ignored. So everybody's going to remember Kurt Cobain, and you know, forget about the rest of us. Yeah, Chuck Klosterman writes about this in the '90s, but I did want to get that exact point about the uh, shared culture and the and the monoculture. But I did want to get to what you've been finding and researching about uh, our latest generations, Gen Z and millennials, but especially Gen Z. And from reading your last book, I Gen. Uh, I got a certain sense that you were putting your finger on certain traits like selfishness, self-regard, but also depression. And in the few years since that book came out, I mean, have you seen much evidence that contradicted much of what you wrote? It seemed like you were seer-like in your capacity to put a finger on trends that have been borne out in the psychological research. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really happened with with that book was just seeing this very, very sudden generational shift um, with, with teens from millennials to Gen Z. So with the data starting around 2012 or so, there's this really sudden increase in teens saying they felt lonely, that they felt left out, that they uh, felt like they didn't enjoy life, that they couldn't do anything right, you know, classic symptoms of the of, of depression. And, you know, what I wrote iGen uh, came out in 2017, those trends had really just started to tick up with depression starting to increase. I only had data up to 2015 uh, at that point, and those trends kept going. Right. And yeah, I mean, I, I obviously we don't want teen depression to increase, but if it was caused by smartphones and social media, which was my theory, that's exactly what we'd expect. Yeah, and I want to even uh, read to you some of the, you got some nasty reviews at the time. And I remember being, I don't know if you want to say on the fence, but my, my attitude, having read your Atlantic piece and not the whole book was, well, she seems like she's on to something. It's as much as you don't want to take preliminary information and say these are solid conclusions, you would also don't want to dismiss out of hand um, phenomena that are backed up by evidence. And there seemed to be a, at the time, growing body of evidence that you were onto something. But some people, some reviewers, some thinkers, and I'll list uh, a couple of them, just totally wrote it off. There was Malcolm Harris, who is who is himself written books that sort of look at a more of a, from a, um, socialist perspective, why millennials are unhappy. But he writes, or he wrote uh, about iGen at the time, I expected the book to be more nuanced than the magazine piece. I think this was an Atlantic piece, which is a promotional tool benefits from having an uncomplicated yet controversial central idea like iPhones ruin children. 
It isn't. She really does blame iPhones. Screen time, Twangy writes, is the worm at the core of the apple of iGen unhappiness. He's dismissive. He's mocking. He also somewhat mischaracterizes, you know, how central the idea is of iPhones ruin children. It goes beyond that. But, you know, looking back in those last five years, isn't he wrong about everything that he was scoffing at? I think so. Obviously, I, you know, I have a particular point of view. But what I, what I meant by saying that it's the worm at the core of the apple is the smartphone and social media. That's also what caused teens to start spending less time with each other face to face. I mean, there's many factors there, but that's the primary one since 2012. Why, you know, don't go out with your friends in person when you can communicate with them online. It also had a big impact on things like sleep. Teens started sleeping less around 2012. So it caused all of these other things. It's not just social media and smartphones themselves. It's these ripple effects that it had. Yeah. And let's also take a step back. When we talk about generations, and I have on this show expressed some skepticism about unified generational theory, but you don't buy into it totally. You don't. You would note that, you know, Charles Manson has as many things different from uh, Bill Clinton as he does the same, even though they are roughly of the same generation. Fine. But as I as we think about generations, and you note this, that technology, including overriding dominant technologies is one of the big reasons, if not the biggest reason, that generations are shaped differently. There's the economics of the time, but there's also how they interact with technology. So why wouldn't a massive society changing technology like at one point television, probably hundreds of years before that, the printing press, but television affect people? And then why wouldn't a computer with all the answers in the world and connectivity to everyone else in the world in your pocket at all times, why wouldn't that massively affect things? And it, of course it does. I mean, being a teenager now is, is completely different from what it was like to be a teenager 20 years ago. And then compare it to 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It's completely different. And one of the main reasons is there's been a fundamental shift in the way teens spend their time out, outside of school. They spend a lot more time online, a, less, a lot less time you know, with each other face-to-face. -face. They're less likely um, to get their driver's license. They're less likely to drink alcohol. They're less likely to date. So they, they take longer to grow up, which is something that's not all bad. Uh, so there's, there's all of these differences. And I think that's what pretty much everybody can agree. Cultures change. That growing up at a different time is going to shape your life and your viewpoints and your behaviors. And what people really debate about is, well, should we be grouping people, you know, in, in, into these big bins? Well, we do it all the time. You know, we do it for regions. We do it for age groups. It's just a way of doing the research. It's a way of understanding people. Right. So a couple more Malcolm Harris uh, arguments, which are addressed, not specifically Malcolm Harris making them, but these were arguments in the air or counter arguments. He writes, would it be more or less enlightening to say that the rise in the combined market cap of the so-called GAFA firms, that's an old acronym for things that sometimes get called FANG, but Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, two of those firms have since changed their name. Would it be more enlightening to say that that makes iGen unhappy? It would be no less true than saying, quote, screen time. He's He's doing two things there. One, he's just pointing out that it's a correlation, not a causation. And he's putting his finger on something that increased in the time that unhappiness of that generation increased. But he's making doing some extra work. He's not picking something randomly and say, 
saying, you know, wouldn't wouldn't the rise of, um, I don't know, passing yards in the NFL explain that? He's saying the uh, rise of the dominance of technology companies and something like income inequality, it fits in with his more socialist uh, mindset. But why wouldn't that correlation be more descriptive than screen time? So I'll let you answer that question. Why is screen time a better explanation than what he's putting his finger on? Because screen time and then less spending less time with friends and less time sleeping, that has a, a huge effect on day-to-day life. Yeah, as opposed to say, I don't know how big Google got. What team even knows that? Um, and and this is true of a lot of other alternative explanations that have been put forward in the five and a half years since. Um, and pretty much every one of them fails in one way or another, whether the timing doesn't line up uh, or it's not something that happened internationally because the rise in teen depression and loneliness happened internationally, not just in, in the U.S. Um, or it's not something that really had a big impact on teens' day-to-day lives. That's what has an effect on mental health, especially things for teens, especially stuff about social interaction. That's their world. Yeah. Some of the arguments, the theories that explain what you're putting your finger on with millennials, theory one, millennial Democrats were upset by Trump's election and presidency. They got upset in 2016 to 2017. You have charts, graphs, and data showing that. Then, this is a big one, a a socialist would point to this. Millennials are depressed because they're broke. Problem with that? Except they're not. (laughs) Yeah. Millennials are disappointed by adulthood. Maybe. Uh, But the first wave of millennials, there wasn't a whole lot of depression when they were figuring out their lives in their 20s. It didn't really happen until later on. So that one has a partial fit, maybe for later millennials, but not early ones. Uh, technology changed the way people judge their lives and how they socialized. I think that that one may have some validity to it. So you know, here I think it's a little it's a little less certain. I'm a little uh, you know with with teens, I think it's pretty clear what happened. With the young adults, I think there's there's a lot more explanatory threads, and we're still trying to figure it out. But that's one possibility. I mean, you know, does anybody ever go on Twitter and say, "Hey, my life is great, and I'm doing really well," and so is my generation? It's just not it's not the norm. And negative news gets clicks, and there's just all of this. It's just this pervasive negativity in our culture right now. When you know, and a lot of young people say, "Of course there is. This is the worst time to live ever." Objectively speaking, I don't think so. Right, right. Uh, that is the other big answer. And it's hard to say that there isn't global warming. And then when you try to rebut that head on and try to contextualize the dangers of global warming versus, say, the dangers of the rise of uh, Hitler in Germany, it, it, it's impossible. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I guard against and warn my listeners against catastrophizing things that are bad or may yet be catastrophes, but we don't know. But what are the best rebuttals to that? It's an objectively terrible time, and we're realizing it more than past generations realized it. So I, I hear this a lot, especially from Gen Z, who will you know talk about all the problems. And you know what? They're right. We have big problems to solve. But is this really a worse time to be young than baby boomers getting drafted into Vietnam? Gen Xers thinking that the world might end tomorrow if Russia drops the bomb or, you know, living in neighborhoods at the height of the crime wave in the early 90s. Yeah, or millennials. That's a good one. That's yeah, a good one because right? people literally don't think that happened. No, I know. People literally would say, come on, it couldn't have been that bad. It in was the 90s. that bad. 
Yeah, it really it was. was that bad. Um, and, and also like the threat of terrorism. I mean, I kind of can't believe that. I'm not even talking about my kids who are 16 and 14, but I talked to a 23-year-old who maybe is hired by a media company, and they have no idea how bad the perception of terrorism was. And if you compare that to, say, the perception of school shootings, it wasn't different except you know, the perception of school shootings are really affecting the mental health of a generation in a way that the perception of Al-Qaeda splinter cells did not. Yeah. The other thing about school shootings is they started to get big around like late 90s. That's not when depression increases. Depression among teens was actually stable until about 2011. Plus, school shootings are not a big thing in other countries. And teen depression and loneliness increased in other countries as well. Right. But also, I would put my finger on the fact that that is when school shootings rose. And, you know, even that has an asterisk. But the drilling and and telling children that th- this is a worry and then pulling them out of classrooms twice a year to try to address this worry, that did more correlate with the rise of depression. Yeah, it's not the shootings themselves; it's the it's the the response to them. And yeah, I mean, I th- I think uh, they definitely need to rethink this. Uh, the research is pretty clear that those things are pretty bad ideas. So to go back, it is true. Uh, global warming is really bad, and I'm not here to convince you it's not. And I am here to advocate that you do everything you can to address climate change. But the idea that there is nothing we could do about this, that it is maybe much more overwhelming than every other environmental or other threat in the world. That is hard to convey in empirical terms. So what we can hope for is that the populace or a generation has a mindset where even if they know that things are daunting, what do you do with that? And you write about this. The mindset has changed. My friend Megan Down, quoted in your book, has written about how we've gone, maybe we used to over-index for resilience, but now it seems that we're over-indexing for sensitivity. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's one of the fundamental generational shifts that uh, Gen Xers took pride in being tough. And now, at least online, a lot of younger generations seem to take pride in being sensitive. It's a really, really fundamental shift in values. Yeah. And I don't know, put a, let's, let's be normative about it, but do you have, I know what you do. You put your fingers on trends and you you don't moralize, but from what you've seen, what are the pros and cons of each approach? So the, the, the pro of being more sensitive is more awareness of mental health issues, trying to empathize with people. And we see that in the survey data. Gen Z is more likely to say it's important to help others than previous generations at the same age. That's the advantage. The disadvantage is all or nothing thinking, piling on cancel culture, uh, lack of resilience. And, you know, this, this current what I think is a toxic atmosphere a lot of times, which is very chilling for open discussion. Yeah. I think you've probably read the same things I have been reading about 
this interesting point that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a toolbox to deal with all the injustices and horrors of the world, but it tells you things like don't assume other people's motivations and don't uh, catastrophize about what the implications of something right in front of you are and don't put uh, a criticism into uh, a wider context. Whereas the new sensitive ideology tells you to do exactly the opposite things. So it's sort of an anti-cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and that, that's, that's the problem. And that's kind of how we ended up, um, you know, with a lot of the problems that we have now, that there are certain things that you can't say or can't even dance around because you could lose your job. Do generations change their mind or values on things, on issues as fundamental as, say, that and sensitivity versus resilience? That's going to be interesting to watch, um, it, and it's it, it's hard to say because there have certainly you know changes in generations, economic circumstances. There's changes in their their mental health. Gen X mental health in teenagers was terrible, and then in middle age, it's actually pretty good. But some of these fundamental values less likely to change. Gene Twenge is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and her new book is Generations. The real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence and what they mean for America's future. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now the spiel. One problem in American life is that we have a blowhard to wallflower imbalance. The correct balance should not be one-to-one, by the way. It's like that old hymn or hymn-like ditty, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Can't be true. We'd have way too many flowers for Every drop of rain, there's a flower. There would be flowers upon flowers. And then, how would the existing flowers get any water? There would be no rain for them, with each raindrop creating exponentially more flowers destined not to get any wetness. It's a flora holocaust, a dystopia. I don't know what the right ratio is. I don't know. It might be like 100,000 to 1 for every drop of raindrop to a flower. Now, I don't propose that the wallflower to blowhard ratio be nearly that high. And forgive me for using flowers in each scenario. But I think that a healthy society should not have too many blowhards, although it's acceptable to have a few blowhards. Blowhards who serve their purpose, as say, showman, P.T. Barnum, or providing a voice that cuts through the din, but also provides fodder for entertainment like Howard Cosell or is a combination of the above two, Geraldo Rivera. But man, is everyone a showman now? Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, pick a first name, sir, was questioning the acting and also aspiring permanent labor secretary, Julie Sue, 
And Senator Mullen's point was that while Sue might have a background with unions, she never owned a business, which he got to right there in his first question. Have you ever been an employer of a business? It's a yes or no. Can it be yes, no, or what's an employer? But the senator implored the nominee to answer, and she answered, no, I've never owned a business. Okay, moving on. Only he didn't. He had some follow-ups. Have you ever created or balanced a budget for a business? Um, Yes or no? These are yes or no. real quick. I want to run through them as quick as I can. I'm going to take that as a no. Have you ever acquired or sold a business? I have not, Senator. Okay. Um, Have you ever had to raise capital in order to launch a new business? I have not, Senator. And having established that she never owned a business, the senator proceeded to ask Sue a dozen questions where, of course, the answer was no, because she never owned a business. Have you prepared a quarterly report? Have you made payroll? Have you decided on which health care insurance for employees? Have you ever had to decide between December 22nd or 21st for an office Christmas party? I have not, Senator. Have you had to decide between the Youth Soccer League and the Youth Little League is the one team you could afford to sponsor, keeping in mind that the Soccer League would let you call the team the Cobras? I have not, Senator. Have you ever had to decide between a no shoes, no shirt, no service sign or an in God would trust all others pay cash sign because you could afford only one? I have not, Senator. Have you ever had to make a kickback to the local mafiosa? only to find out his uncle didn't even run the local carding company? I have not, Senator. This is all so tedious. This is such blowhard behavior. And it's not as if the tactics were necessarily of the blowhardial nature. You could make the point, which I don't even think is a good point, but you could make the point in a non-blowhard way. I mean, as far as it not being a good point, we have a commerce secretary, we have a small business administration secretary, and we don't grill them. Well, you had all these dealings with small businesses, but never any unions. How are you qualified to run the Small Business Administration if you're only meeting with small businesses? Even so, there is a non-blowhard way to make that point, such as it is. Here is normal human being Mitt Romney showing how to do that. During your your last two years at the department, uh, the public calendar shows that you've had a standing meeting with unions on a regular basis. but until six weeks ago, you not met with any business associations, unions on a regular basis, but not with, with business associations. I, I guess it's really hard to understand how when we think about putting two groups together and getting to the compromise and negotiating, how we can have any confidence that you'd be seen as an unbiased, neutral arbiter, but instead would be biased in such a way that businesses associations are not going to be able to trust the Department of Labor to play a meaningful role. But then Romney launched into... By the way, Miss Sue, have you ever been a circus clown? Have you worn a red nose? Have you worn large oversized shoes? Have you traveled along with 30 work colleagues in a single vehicle? I have not, Senator. No, Romney didn't do that because Romney's not a blowhard. It's possible to be a senator and not be a blowhard. It's harder than it used to be with social media incentivizing more outrageous behavior to appeal to voters and donors, but it is still possible. But we are dangerously close to blowhard overload. But in South Korea, they have the opposite problem. There, the shy are everywhere. Or, 
According to CNN, nowhere. The Ministry of Gender Equity and Family announced this week that it will provide up to 650,000 Korean won per month to isolated social recluses in a bid to support their, quote, psychological and emotional stability and healthy growth. Oh my God, two months and they will be millionaires. That will knock the social awkwardness right out of them, actually. 650,000 won, it is a little less than $500. Still, $500 a month for just being shy and staying at home. They might want to lop at least two, and I'm going to recommend three zeros off their currency, but that's for them to decide. The initiative is real. About 3.1% of Koreans aged 19 to 39 are, quote, reclusive, lonely young people defined as living in a, quote, state of being disconnected from the outside for more than a certain period of time and having noticeable difficulty in living a normal life, that according to the Korean Institute for Health and Social Affairs, which was cited by the government in describing their payment. Now, I understand a lot of South Koreans have the blahs. I've lived there for a while. Can get gray. Monsoon season, really quite wet. The second BTS guy's going into the army. So that's really sad. I don't know. 500 bucks a month? Is that really the best cure for shyness? I mean, and if you do give it out, I think you have to decree that the 500 can't be spent on in-game purchases if you want to get these shy out of their homes. And then there's the problem that in South Korea specifically, you can't really make an appeal. Hey, get out there! Mingle in the labyrinthine streets of Itaewon around Halloween time. That would be bad. KBS, the Korean Broadcasting Service, recently interviewed a shy South Korean teen, and here's what he said. When I think about going out, I am tempted, but ultimately I refrain. I ask myself, how can I ever be hurt? Make a mark, own a business, and if I own a business, will I make payroll? Pick a health care plan, balance a budget, I will not. So I must rely on my 650,000 won. That was a rough translation. Very rough. In fact, it was not a shy South Korean teen. It was Haesong Kong of the Padres. And the sentiment was about playing baseball, having nothing to do with shyness. You know what I did? I made it up and I just spewed it out there. That tells you where I am on the wallflower to blowhard continuum. But I own that. I guard against that, and I want to reform. Also, I would like the almost $500. But many Americans, much more so than even me, need to pull way back. Just as many a South Korean could use a dollop of extroversion. I don't wish the rhetorical stylings of Mark Wayne Mullen on anyone, but we've got a surfeit of bluster, and they've a dearth. Their flowers need more rain, and our spewing weather systems could use a lot more wetlands to absorb the moisture. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Corey Wara. Has he ever worked on a spiel as wacky as this one? Joel Patterson is the just senior producer. He's a member of Gen X. Has he bonded with any of the fascinating members of the Gen Z cohort? Michelle Pesca is vice president of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. And has she congratulated the CEO of Peachfish Productions on his many fine chicken-related puns the other day? The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. 
Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. But the storm, the smallest prayer, will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word.